0: I got all day, people. I, I can wait you guys out. We are in a series called Identity and Mission, and we're looking at who we are in Christ as a church, what we're called to as a church that is committed to Jesus and His mission. We've talked about how the story of Scripture in and, and its kind of grand meta-narrative or its big-picture themes commits us to being biblical and devotional and connectional and missional we want to be people of the book we want to be uh, living into a devotional reality with god we want to be connecting with each other just like we did um, not just here on sunday but through the week finding ways to bless and encourage one another and we want to be missional we want to be using our gifts and talents individually and the talents that we have cumul- cumulatively as a church to serve the nelson area and to the ends of the earth last week I was pretty impressed. It was kind of like a history lesson on the Reformation, but I had a lot of people that were like, I've either never heard this before or just kind of feel like I did maybe somewhere way back in the recesses of my memory, but it was a real kind of like, oh wow, this is like really, really important. And we talked about the Protestant Reformation, the protest against the corruption in the Catholic Church and how that led to five solas Uh, sola scriptura, Solo fide, gratia Christus and dia gloria which were these kind of um, summation clarion calls to say if you are a part of this protest against the corruption of the church this protest is defined by these five statements that we believe scripture alone should be the authority in matters of faith and practice. It doesn't mean that all Christians need is the Bible. It doesn't mean that there's not wisdom or knowledge that can be gleaned in, from other sources. It just means that Scripture alone is authoritative to teach us the most important information in terms of who we are, you know, who God is, who we are, how we're called to live as Christians. Faith alone, we're saved by faith alone, by, through grace alone, through Christ alone, and therefore God gets the glory. Not just when we talk about how we are saved, but we now live for God's glory. We recognize that who we are in Christ and what we have and the hope that we have for this life and beyond the horizon after death and then in a new heavens and new earth, all of that is because of God's grace. God's done the whole thing. We've contributed nothing. And so we uh, relax and celebrate into that and then say, now I want to live for God's glory because in recognition and in response of what he's done for me. So... In very broad strokes, I realized it was kind of a fail. I don't think I actually mentioned when the Reformation happened. I just kind of talked about it. Sometimes I forget little details. I'm not a detail person. Um, The Reformation happens around 1500, so 1500 years after Jesus is born. Um, But uh, let me kind of give you a really brief, this is about as brief as it could possibly get. If you are a church history aficionado, what I'm going to do is just going to, cause you deep anxiety and grief because it's about as high a level overview as you could ever get i want to take you through the history of the church so you can kind of get a general sense of the momentum that again leads into the reformation and then leads into a secondary movement coming out of that that we'll talk about today that informs us as a church so you have death and resurrection ascension of jesus somewhere around 33 a.d From there you have Pentecost, the establishment, and explosion of the church. But again, when we think church, we don't want to think church buildings. We want to think those who have given their hearts to Jesus and now gather together. Early on it happened in Jerusalem at the temple that was there. And eventually it begins happening in people's homes, begins to expand all over. And that happens for about 250 years despite tremendous persecution. Christianity spreads very rapidly. Christians become a target and a scapegoat for a lot of the uh, economic or social issues that are happening during a deteriorating Roman Empire at that time. But even though there's very, very extreme and cruel um, persecution that happens, not just like, oh, Christians are bad, like killing Christians, torturing Christians, doing it publicly, um, the church expands. More and more people are coming to uh, faith. More and more people are saying, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, and I want to live um, into that reality. Then in 300, there's this guy called Constantine. He is the Roman emperor. He says he has a conversion experience where he has this vision where he feels like God is calling him to become a Christian. He uh, says he, he becomes a Christian. And then what he does is kind of immediately he says, we're gonna stop the persecution of Christianity. Christianity becomes legal, which is a really big development in terms of the safety of Christians. And then in short order, what happens is then Christianity gets installed as the official religion of the Roman Empire. and That's where things start to go off the rails a little bit because now you have this weird merger between yeah, the the church and everyone's all about Jesus, but we also kind of have to fit that together with Roman political priorities. And so there's this um, probably well-intended but very unholy alliance that kind of gets mashed together. And right early on, there are evidences that this is gonna sort of corrupt Christianity. If for no other reason, then if if, if before you were a very uh, power hungry person who wanted to have a lot of influence in society, you might have gone into politics because that's where the movers and shakers are. But now because church and politics are kind of wedded together, you have people who will very Uh, just for their own selfish gain, move into roles like being a pastor or being a bishop or eventually being a pope who are just as much committed to the political advancement of the Roman Empire as they are to a pure faith in Christ. So you fast forward about a thousand years, there's this big split between the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church because they have disagreements about should there be one pope and who's an authority and So they split, that's one major split, and then between 1,000 and 1,500, the Roman Catholic Church gets very powerful, uh, incredibly quickly, really rises to prominence, militarily, economically, uh, in terms of uh, expansion of influence. And that that ratchets up against this, again, this corruption. So by the time you get to 1,500, you have priests like Luther saying, we've gone wrong somewhere and as he begins to study the Bible which again only the educated religious class slash political class could do the average person you didn't have the Bible that you could fact check anything what I said you just assumed was what the Bible taught and so when they began to look at the Bible they said "Ooh, the church is not the church that we see here we don't have the priorities of Jesus we've got to get back to this so they tried to reform the church they were protesting in order to reform. And eventually what happens is they break, they break away. Now, once the Protestants break away from the Roman Catholics, part of what becomes kind of in the culture of ref- uh, pro- uh, protesting churches, right? If you have a group of people that are like, we're not like the Catholics, we're gonna be like this, five solas. It didn't take very long before some people in that group started saying, well, you know you know Rob and I were in this thing together but now I'm kind of maybe I'm protesting a little bit what Rob thinks too and maybe we need to split from that and then all these different splits begin to happen so you have the Roman Catholic Church kind of chugging along as one big entity because it has kind of unilateral control and then you have all these Protestant divisions beginning to break free as more and more people are getting the Bible into their own hands and more and more leaders are saying Oh, I actually think this should be the priority of our church. Well, I think this should be the priority. And so you have different branches, in a sense, on the Protestant tree. And sometimes it gets very, very violent. And there are uh, real negative things that come from um, issues of interpretation that for us might seem really silly, but something like, not that it's done, but how the Lord's Supper is engaged in becomes something that some Protestant churches, and certainly some Christians, are willing to go to war over, because it's so important, and they believe they have the Word of God. So in a stew of this expansion, you have all these different churches, Protestant churches, splitting off from each other, creating their own emphases, and in Germany, what ends up being known as the Lutheran Church gets established, and, Within about 100 under, 100, under 200 years, 180 years, it has gone from, there is no kind of established Protestant churches to its, um, you, it's just ubiquitous all over Germany. The Protestant Reformation in, in its Lutheran, which is focusing obviously on the teachings of Martin Luther, has really taken hold. But it's kind of morphed into a very heady kind of understanding of what it means to be a Christian, meaning a lot, long lists of these, this is precise doctrine, this is not just what we believe, but this is how we talk about it. These are the specific words we use. High liturgy, there's a lot of precision and exactitude around how you practice the Christian life. It leans toward being very, what I would call, scholastic, meaning, um, if you think about the stereotype of a person who just has all the right answers, and there, there might be a disconnect between those beliefs and those answers in their everyday life, but they can just like rhyme off Bible verses and they can tell you all these books they've read. That was kind of, those are the kinds of people that rose to prominence within the Lutheran tr- tradition. And what happens is there is another kind of reformer named Philip Jacob Spener, who writes a, what comes to be one of the most important treaties within Luth- L- Lutheranism called Pia Desirea, which means holy desire, and he says, we need to have another reformation. Because even though we're in Germany and we have these churches everywhere and everyone knows the Bible, kind of there's an established Christian culture. He said people don't have a lived relationship with God. They get born into the church, they grow up thinking that they're a Christian. Everyone around them just reinforces that. Everyone goes to church, everyone pray, everyone's very kind of in a sense pious on one level. But he saw a real disconnect in terms of people who genuinely loved Jesus and wanted to serve Jesus' purposes in the world. He saw what some might call kind of a cultural Christianity, where people, when they're young, they're just told what they're meant to believe and then kind of just live a good life. But a vibrant, dynamic, transformative relationship with Jesus, he didn't see evidence for. And so in under 200 years in the Reformation, the Reformation had gone, at least in the Lutheran experience, um, expansion had gone from we want to get back to the Bible to sort of like calcified hardened um, almost like a, a mini Catholic church where it was like everything's been figured out here's the way you do it just follow the religious dogma and follow the religious rituals and you'll be fine and that's all that matters and so Spainer in the 1680s leads to what eventually becomes known as Pietism, which is the other, there's two major historical movements that that have shaped the Covenant Church. The first is the Protestant Reformation, but the second is Pietism. And this is probably the one that you wouldn't know as much about because it just doesn't get as much airtime. And yet everybody in this room, as you're going to find out, powerfully impacted by Spaner's vision and the early Pietists. And so this is a renewal movement. Again, Spaner's not trying to reject the Lutheran Church. He's This is a gross simplification, but what he's trying to say is we've let our Christianity become too intellectual and too much about the right answers, and we've got to get back into Christianity where on a heart level we're devoted to Jesus, we're actually serious about living out our faith in ways that are real for people, we've got to kind of balance the head with the heart, and for some people that's a false dichotomy, I think it's a false dichotomy, but it kind of gives you a sense of what he was trying to push towards. One of the revolutionary things that he did, that no one else had done to this point, was he encouraged conventicles, which we would know today as small group Bible studies. So if you've ever been in a group study where you each have the Bible or access to the Bible and you read the Bible together and you talk about the Bible, that was from pietism. And these were so controversial, super, well, they're actually illegal, (laughs) not just controversial. They're actually illegal. Because at the time, the Lutheran Christian government said, we want people reading the Bible, but we don't want people reading the Bible on their own because you need a certain level of intellectual and uh, training and you need, you need to be seminary trained. You can't just, yes, we want people to engage the Bible, but you can't just give the average person the Bible. That's just a recipe for chaos and disaster. And so the, the way they got away with it at the start was they got together and Spainer would just read sermons from Martin Luther because the Lutheran, Lutherans can't get you in trouble for just reading a sermon from their founder, right? But they were still kinda like, ooh, that's kinda sketchy. It's kinda on the boat a little bit. And eventually what happens is these conventicles grow. First time in any kind of history that, uh, that uh, outside of the early church probably where uh, women and men were invited to discuss and engage the Bible in the same room on equal footing. Very, very revolutionary. And again, in the same way that the early reformers, the Catholic Church felt like the early reformers were a real threat to them, this pietistic movement, and piety, pietism comes from the idea of piety, which means a, a longing for holiness and for deep devotion to God, this movement felt. A little bit like a overcorrection, like, whoa, whoa, settle down. Like we're all Christian here. Like, you don't have to become like super Christians and be reading the Bible and being about Jesus. Like we're all on the same page in Spain, and we're just like, Are we though? Like you have lots of Bible facts on the tip of your tongue. But I want to be part of pastoring people into a lived relationship with Jesus. And so the Pietists wanted to take the truths of the Reformation, these five solas and core biblical truths, and then make sure they're really being pushed down, not into people's heads, but into their hearts and into their actions, into their, into their lifestyle. And so the emphasis was about cultivating a personal relationship with God. The emphasized the need to be born again, to study the Bible in small groups with other Christians who could help you and soften your own understanding and expand your understanding, and you could learn and grow and... Um, apply scriptures together. So there were kind of four instincts, Pietists call them instincts, that kind of eventually um, historians could look at and say, these kinds of instincts inform this movement. So the first was, Christianity is about life with God, not just about memorizing beliefs or ideas about God. It's about life with God every day. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 7, warns people, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is gonna enter the kingdom of heaven. You might have the right answers. You might recognize me as Lord. and that, that doesn't guarantee entrance into the kingdom life here or in eternity. He says, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. A lot of people are going to say on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform these miracles? And I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. And so Spainer and the Pietists said, we want to help people come into a lived relationship with Jesus where they know Jesus personally and God, and, and they understand that it's about cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus. So if you've ever used that phrase, Christianity is about a personal relationship with Jesus, it's because of Spain, and it's because of the Pietists. Because that was a huge emphasis of theirs. They also focused on unity. They saw so many Protestants protesting, not just the Catholic Church, but increasingly each other, that they tried to counter-correct that and said, yes, we're going to have disagreements about things, but as much as possible, let's try and move forward in mission, focusing on what unites us. Let's not get um, bogged down with fights over um, the precise precise mechanism or timeline of things leading up to Jesus' return. Let's not get bogged down with How exactly does communion have to be administered? Let's just administer it and offer grace to say some people are going to want to come forward, some people are going to want it brought to them, some people are going to be okay with a pastoral leader presiding over it, some people are going to say it doesn't have to be a pastoral leader, we're all priests in the kingdom of God. And let's extend grace. So there's a real focus on unity. Number three, the the church was to be understood as a group of mission friends. Spainer wanted a church, not where just people came together on Sunday, sat there blankly, did the religious ritual, left. But like what just happened, people were saying hi to each other and smiling and there was a sense of camaraderie. But it wasn't just on the level of generic human community, it was because we're all pursuing God together and we're trying to serve God together. And he said, that's what I want the culture of pietism to bring back into the Lutheran Church was this real emphasis that we are mission friends. And kind of dovetailing with that theme of deep relational connection with each other, he said, pietists are driven by this instinct that they're full of hope. There was a lot of dour, sour, doom and gloom, Protestant emphases at that time, and his idea was that well, yeah, we want to recognize that we might be living in hard times or that there we go through hard times, but if God's Spirit is at work in us and at work in the world, isn't that at the most fundamental level, the, shouldn't the baseline then be we have hope and optimism and expectancy for our lives and for society around us? So pietists became known as these people who not were um, I- idealists, but were filled with hope and could meet the despair or doom and gloom that they experienced in the world with a counter-narrative. 2 Thessalonians says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved, us by his, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. That was a pious uh, instinct that we're propelled forward into good works, not because we have to or obligation or ooh, just taking it off the list or I'm going to make God happy. It's like, no, like, I'm joining with God's mission. We can make a difference in the world here and now in people's lives as we faithfully respond to Jesus. Now, the name of our church is not Nelson Piestic Covenant Church. It's Nelson Evangelical Covenant Church. But in a lot of ways, how the covenant understands evangelical is almost synonymous with Piastic. So it could have been Nelson Piastic Covenant Church, right? Today, there's a, quite a range of understandings of what it means to be evangelical, right? Back then, or, or the reason why the covenant adopted that term originally was from these emphases, to be a people of hope to be people who push deep into having a lived relationship with Jesus. Who don't just inform the head but inform the heart and the hands to action and to love. To be mission friends together. Where um, coming together, getting together with your fellow Christians was something you could look forward to and you could have laughter, tears and everything in between as we follow God together. So pietism was really a precursor to in the 20th century, what became known as evangelicalism. Evangelicalism borrowed a lot, some would argue all of its core emphases, needing a personal relationship with Jesus, need to be born again, about a simple faith, trust in Christ, get into the scriptures, from pietism. And so the covenant church emerges from these two movements, the reformed movement, to be protesting against the corruption of the church, to get back to the Bible, put the Bible in everyone's hands, And then the Pietistic movement, which sought to not allow Christianity to get sucked back into the trap of just being a mechanical, what most people would probably associate with the term like institutional dry religion. But a lived expression of hearts and lives that have yielded themselves to Jesus and are increasingly yielded to Jesus in passionate pursuit of God's purposes in the world. And then what happens is eventually the covenant church, looking at its whole history, says this is how we're going to define ourselves. And so when we talk about ourselves as Nelson Evangelical Covenant Church, you can remember evangelical is kind of like pious, to be pious, to be really pursuing holiness and righteousness to God's glory and the world's good. And the covenant part means to commit to a series of beliefs or affirmations that eventually covenant leaders said, if we're going to be a denomination, if we're going to be a tribe, this is the kind of culture that we want to push through all of our churches. We can't make it happen, but we can set this out as the aspirational ideal. And so they came up with six affirmations. The first being, we affirm the centrality of the Word of God. In their um, founding documents it says we affirm the centrality of the word of god we believe the bible is the only perfect rule for faith doctrine and conduct the dynamic transforming power of the word of god directs the church and the life of each christian all scripture second, second timothy uh, reads is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness and where maybe Lutherans or other Protestants said, yeah, they, they focused on the first half of that, like all scripture is God breathed. Yeah, I believe the word of God is the word of God. Pietus said, that's awesome. Don't forget the back half of that verse. It's useful. It's supposed to do something in our lives to lead us towards increasing holiness on a personal level, to teach us, to correct us so that we continue to move into God's mission. So it's God's word given to us for a purpose. The second affirmation is they said, we affirmed the necessity of the new birth. They said, if you're going to be a covenant church, we need to teach people to understand that Christianity isn't just a set of ideas that you can hear about and adopt. You have to, at some point, and there's different language for it, some people say, ask Jesus into your heart, uh, accept him as your Lord and Savior, acknowledge Jesus' Lordship, but there's, on some level, a surrender to the fact that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus, he says, I want to tell you the truth. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And the covenanter said, yeah, that's true. You can't just like, you're not just automatically subsumed into the church. No one is just born a Christian. A Christian is someone who has yielded their hearts to Jesus. Sometimes when you do that, that that manifests in a very deep and powerful experience of God's love and grace in a particular moment. For other people, it doesn't. It's just an acknowledgement that says, I've come to the conclusion I wanna follow Jesus and there's no fireworks. They don't have any kind of an intense religious experience. That didn't matter to the pietists. The pietists just said, have you reckoned with your need to come into a lived relationship with Jesus? If you have deep feelings about that in that moment, that's, that's not important. Our faith isn't based on our feelings, but biblical faith is based on acknowledging our need to have forgiveness and new life, and only Jesus can offer us that. So have you, the pietists might ask, have you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Because no one else can do that for you. The next affirmation they said is we want to cultivate a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. The covenant writes, we affirm the Trinitarian understanding of one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the New Testament tells us that the Holy Spirit wo- works both within individuals, but also among them. And we believe it is the Holy Spirit who instills in our hearts a desire to turn to Christ, who assures us that Christ dwells within us. And the Holy Spirit enables our obedience. And so again, there's this emphasis that Christianity isn't just moralism, where I read some rules, I kind of figure out the do's and the don'ts, and then I just try and enact that in my everyday life. And then when I fail... I just double down, more willpower, just gotta get more motivated, like, oof, like, okay, God, I'm gonna really try tomorrow, psych myself up. The pietist said, yeah, that's not the vision of the Christian life. There, can be, there should be striving, there can be ambition, absolutely, but there ha- that has to be wedded, Jeff, with a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. You have to recognize that you can't live the kind of life God calls you to, so you have to start every day on your hands and knees asking God for help. And you have to go through your day learning to depend on the Holy Spirit. And they left that very, very open and said, we're not going to get really precise about what does it mean to have a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. So if you're thinking, that sounds kind of vague, it was intentionally vague. But it came from a heart that said, you need to, individually and as a church, recognize that you need God's help every day to fulfill what God wants to do in you and through you. Paul in Ephesians 3 writes, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And then eventually he says, so that you may be filled to the full measure of God. Next affirmation, a commitment to the whole mission. Oh, by the way, sorry, conscious dependence of the Holy Spirit. That's what I wanted to say. There are some people here who have been trying to willpower themselves deeper into Christ. Uh, deeper into mission past a particular place where they're stuck and if you're like, I don't know what it looks like to live with conscious dependence of the Holy Spirit that's where a course like Freedom Session can really, really help you. Very practically teach you how to live in participation with God's Spirit. And so if, if that is your aspiration but you also feel very closed or stuck or embedded in cycles that you can't get out of please um, take advantage of that course that's being offered because that's the point of the course is to teach you how to walk with God through these challenging, difficult places of healing where God can bring deliverance from. A commitment to the whole mission of the church. The covenant says, we affirm a commitment to the whole mission of the church. Now, some interaction here. Why do you think that's an emphasis? Why would they make sure to say, we commit to the whole mission of the church. Why that language, do you think? Uh, could be. We'll, we'll actually get to the next one. It was a little bit more on the split, but there, there is a, a thread of that here, but that's, a, gonna be, that's gonna come in a little bit more to the next affirmation. It has to do with the word whole. The Pietists saw, and the Covenant Church saw a lot of churches emphasizing and putting all their energy whether by intention or not but practically into just preaching the gospel and trying to save people's souls. And so they saw a lot of Protestant churches um, seeming to only care about telling people the need for Jesus and if people want to respond to that, that's great and if not, they move on. And what the Pietists said is that's not what it means to be on mission for God what it means to be on mission for God looks a lot more like the appeals in Kenya. Who they come, they're Christian, they're honest about that, but their agenda is a kingdom holistic agenda, which is we're here to bless and serve this community. We're gonna do it in the name of Jesus, but we're gonna establish hospitals. We're gonna establish care to show that God isn't just interested in a part of who you are as a person. And he's not even just uh, he doesn't just, He's not just interested in individual flourishing, but God wants his shalom and his goodness and his justice and reconciliation to expand to the social level. And so the covenanter said, yes, we need to boldly proclaim that the hope of um, individuals and families and marriages and societies is to yield to Christ and to learn to live into his priorities. But the way we do that is by not simply leaving that at the level of proclaiming it. We proclaim in word and deed. We're committed to the whole mission of the church. And so, mission for the covenanters definitely included evangelism, talking about the faith and, and trying to convince people to become Christians. But that was also in the context of um, ministries that were focused on compassion and mercy and justice, so that people didn't just hear that God loved them, but it was reinforced from a place of authenticity where covenanters could say, God loves you and I'm going to love you even if you never become a Christian. Too bad, I'm gonna bless you, right? We're gonna give $10,000 worth of school supply packs to needy families in this region. And if no one becomes a Christian because of it, that's okay, God is gonna use it how he does. And even if there's people who are like, oh, just some kind of like bait and switch manipulation? I don't, I don't, I don't want your charity. I don't want your money. That's fine. We'll Keep loving you, though. We're just keep blessing you. So a commitment to the whole mission of the church. Because Jesus said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But Covenanters married that with Micah 6.8. How do we become a witness for Christ? Just going around, telling people about Jesus? No by acting justly, loving, mercy, and walking humbly with your God. So those two verses got wedded together and said, that's what it means to be part of the covenant church, is to love people, um, is to care and love for people, not simply with words, but to make sure that that's being married to acts of service and kindness and deeds. The next one, which um, Rob spoke to, is that the church is a fellowship of believers. And the covenant um, really leaned into this Because at this point, certainly by the time pietism rolls around, there are some pretty deep divisions around some pretty, what would probably seem to us, very minor theological issues. And so it was pretty courageous for the early covenanters to say, we're gonna be a church where we're gonna allow some flexibility. We don't have a huge list of doctrine where we all have to be on the same page in understanding and in articulation around all these issues. Um, like a family, we recognize there's going to be some awkward, you know, people are going to be right to right center on this issue, left to center over here, maybe uh, more extreme in certain emphases. And uh, we want to really fight the temptation that we see in Protestant churches to say, well, yeah, this has just become too inconvenient and too anxiety producing so why don't you just go off and do your own thing you, you make your we should worship at 9 o'clock Sunday church and we'll keep our we should worship at 11 o'clock on Sunday church and yeah it's just easier that way the covenant said no we gotta fight if God has brought us together as a family then part of our witness to the world and part of our learning to love each other well is learning to extend grace to Christian brothers and sisters who might have different priorities than us who might live out their faith differently in a way that makes us uncomfortable maybe, but the covenant said, stay in relationship together, be honest with some of those people about, I I don't understand why you're doing this. And I don't want that to sound judgmental or condemnatory, I just, I wanna understand. But there was always uh, a a momentum underneath it to say, you're my brother or sister, like we're a family and um, we don't need everyone to be acting the same way we don't need strict compliance because the covenanters had seen where that led and it led to tremendous animosity and a real narrowing of christian vision and it took the vision of churches off of how do how are we a part of christ's mission to the world around us and it just became increasingly insular where churches spent all their time again discussing red carpet blue carpet Nine-foot ceilings, 11-foot ceilings. How should the structure of our churches look? And the pietists said, at some point, we just gotta say, it doesn't matter that much. Let's move forward in mission together, offering a lot of grace to each other. So the church is a fellowship of believers. And the covenanters were so radical on this, this is pretty radical, especially for the time. They said, you could be a part of our church if you were baptized and you said you were a Christian. That's it. Now, in the context where churches were like, you've got to do X number of catechism classes, you have to be able to know this much about the Bible, you need to be able to prove through reference letters and, and different, uh, you need to be able to have people vouch that you are a genuine Christian, this is what we're looking for. Covenanter said, listen, every family has dysfunction, the church is going to have dysfunction, the church isn't going to be for perfect people. If you sincerely want to follow Jesus, you're welcome to be a part of us. If you're baptized, you can be a member, and that's it. Now, we might look at that today and say, oh, that was radically inclusive. That was very, very risky for them to do, and still continues to be in some context of where the covenant does ministry. One really interesting note here, that uh, it was interesting to me, the covenant pushed this idea that we're a family priesthood of all believers like the scripture talks about we're all equal in the kingdom of god which naturally led to the conclusion or at least the question well if we're all in this together we're all co-priests we're all co-pastors should we pay anybody to be a pastor awkward (laughs) right right so I was in a covenant history course, and this becomes, a, this becomes a really significant question for the covenant church in the early part of the 20th century, 1920s, uh, maybe a little bit, uh, early 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. But it came out of this sincere um, desire to say, we want to avoid like, any sense of second class Christianity or higher or lower, like we're all one in Christ, we're all family, should we pay pastors? And do you know what the reason why they decided to pay pastors was? You probably don't, but I'm just asking it as I get your brains going. It was incredibly pragmatic. What they did is they had a number of covenant churches that basically said, we don't think we need a pastor, we're going to be lay-led, and we're just going to rotate people preaching and all that stuff. And they had another series of covenant churches that said we're going to pay a pastor free up their time to be able to focus on teaching, preparation, discipleship, prayer, kind of the umbrella of pastoral duties during the week. We want to free one person in our community to focus on that exclusively. And all the covenant did is look at that cluster, those two different clusters and say, which seems more fruitful over time? They didn't say one was wrong. They let covenant churches that didn't want to have a paid pastor keep not having a paid pastor. But what they said was, our recommendation is if a church kind of wants to go to that next level of really being active in God's mission, it seems to us, just from kind of a sociological point of view, that churches that pay one of their members to be pastoring, over time there's just a greater fruitfulness in terms of individual growth, movement into the mission. So it wasn't even really a theological decision. At the end of the day, they weren't trying to prove chapter and verse. They said, you can be a covenant church either way, but we recommend that you pay a pastor because our experience has taught us that it's more fruitful. But in doing that, they really, really hammered into their early pastors that you have to see yourself as part of a family, that you don't have power over people. You have power to come alongside and underneath people and to help them move forward into the mission of God. Lastly, the reality of freedom in Christ, and I'll talk a little bit more about this next week because it's really tricky, maybe one of the more controversial ones. We affirm the reality of freedom in Christ. This is probably one of those like identity statements that you won't find any in any other denomination. It's pretty unique to the covenant. covenant and this is what it means: the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 5:1, "It is for freedom that Christ has set us free." This freedom is a gift of God in Christ. And it manifests itself in right relationship with God and other people. It's not a privileged gift to be used selfishly but is given to serve the community and the world. For Paul, this freedom means we are f- set free from the power of those that on their, power of those things that on their own tend to divide Christians. And so united in Christ, we offer freedom to one another to differ on issues of belief or issues of practice where the biblical or historical record seems to allow for a variety of interpretations of the will or purposes of God. And so we in the covenant church seek to focus on what unites us as followers of Christ rather than on what divides us. As we talked about last, what we will talk about next week is that this freedom has created probably the most tension of all the affirmations because what it has essentially tried to do is to say we recognize that honest, God-fearing Christians are going to read and interpret and apply the Bible differently. And we want to give as much space for that to happen with integrity as possible. There are boundary markers. It has to be biblically tenable. There has to be some kind of evidence that in the history of the church, that interpretation has played out. But for example, within the covenant, it is perfectly legit to say, I am a believers only baptism person. I think people should only be baptized when they can consciously make a decision for Christ and other people who say I believe in infant baptism coming out of a covenantal understanding not covenant church but biblical covenantal understanding of the Old Testament and circumcision. And there's a whole kind of interesting conversation there and the covenant just said "Yep, yeah, Jeff is a covenant pastor we're going to honor both of those expressions of faith and not get into the weeds in terms of like who's right or who's wrong. We're gonna give freedom to create a culture that allows there to be biblical foundations, but also flexibility. And as you can imagine, with certain issues at different times in the Covenant's history, that's been really contentious, because the obvious question is, just how flexible is that freedom? Just how far does that freedom reach, right? And so we'll, I'll get into that a little bit more in next week, but for now, hear the heart of the early Covenanters, which was through all of these affirmations, to avoid a very rigid, very strict, um, very spoken from, um, dictatorial speaking down of the religious leaders at the top have determined what faith looks like and what it should look like and now we basically just police you into the Christian life. It's like, no, we're a family. It, it's a, it was a complete, um, again, for us as probably evangelicals or in our context this doesn't sound that radical. It kind of sounds like, well, yeah, this is what it means to be a Christian. like you care for each other. But it was so different. And it was so risky. And it didn't have to actually take root, but it did. And so as we think about our identity and our mission as a church moving forward, these are affirmations, these are instincts that have to inform how we understand our own faith journeys. Right? Centrality of the Word of God, the necessity of new birth, conscious dependence of the Holy Spirit, the whole mission, being committed to the whole mission of the church. Affirming the church as a fellowship of believers. We're a family, co-empowered together for God's mission. The reality of freedom in Christ. These are a huge part of our church's DNA. And so we need to allow these to continue to shape our culture because these affirmations were designed to keep the main thing the main thing. Keeping us moving towards Jesus, deeper in Christ, further in mission, humbly serving one another, the world around us, as we continue to lean into these affirmations, they help ensure that our identity as a church stays true to Jesus' call and that our mission into God's um, vision for kingdom impact uh, has integrity and is fruitful for His glory. So let's pray. God, we thank You for these movements, for the Reformation and then Pietism and the way that they have and continue to shape how we understand faith, how we express it. And I pray that even this week, God, you would reawaken us to be thankful in new ways for these emphases that echo over hundreds of years of history and that continue to bless us and challenge us. And may these understandings really take root in our heart. May we have a deep appreciation for what it means to be an evangelical slash pietistic covenant church. And may we, move to mo- uh, may we move forward as mission friends. That was a great ambition of the early covenanters, to be people who love Jesus, but didn't just keep that love sequestered to their own church gatherings or their own Bible studies, but said, how do we bring this good news in word and deed to those around us? Continue to open the eyes of our hearts uh, for opportunities to do that here in Nelson, God. Amen.